If you have your Bibles, turn with me back to the 19th chapter of Matthew as we continue through our series of Matthew, coming back to that same passage where we left off a few weeks ago. Matthew chapter 19. I'll begin reading at verse 16, going down through verse 26. Now hear the word of the Lord. And behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Our gracious Father, we thank You for the Word of the Gospel and for the great messenger of that Gospel, the great content of that Gospel, the great object of that Gospel. We are thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and for our Redeemer who has given His life that we might have it, who has left glory that we might inherit it. We're thankful for being our God and calling us to be your people and thankful for the spirit that has given us this text this morning. And now we ask that your spirit would fall fresh upon us and fall fresh upon the speaker, that I would decrease, Christ would increase. May that be true of us all this day. So we pray that the preaching would not be in the power of the flesh, but in the power of the spirit. And pray that our hearts would be receptive to the message that the Spirit would have for us. And we pray that You would bring forth the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of this message today in each one of our lives. And we pray that You would be glorified now in our very midst. So hallow Your name. And pray that Your kingdom would come. And Your will would now be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen may be seated. Last time we looked at this text, we unpacked what was going on here with this rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked him a question, and then Jesus' response to him regarding what good thing he must do to have eternal life. Now understanding what Jesus was doing and how he was responding to this man is very important to our understanding of the gospel. 
There's a critical factor involved in this particular interchange that this man lacked for eternal life. And if you personally still lack this in your experience, then you are still unconverted even though you may have a profession of faith. There's a necessary ingredient to saving faith that if absent, will not be a saving faith at all. This morning I want to preach to you about an essential factor in saving faith. You might recall a few weeks ago when we looked at this passage that Jesus had to correct some of the misconceptions that this man brought to the table as he then approached the Lord with these questions. The first thing that Jesus had to correct is this man's misconception that any human is good. You know, nearly every person considers himself to be good. This man was no exception. He comes and he addresses Jesus, good teacher. Now he's not conceiving at this point that Jesus is God. He's not approaching the Messiah or Jesus Christ as God. He's a Approaching him as a teacher, as a human in all of its elements here. So he's coming to this teacher that he is considering human, and he's calling him good. And that's why Jesus questions him, and in that question corrects him. Why do you call me good? There's no one good. Only one good. And that is God. Now there's the clear correction, and he is saying that no man is good. In fact, he is drawing from the Scriptures here. He's not bringing new revelation. Psalm 14 begins this way, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who any who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not. One. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, the first three verses of those two psalms start exactly the same way, emphasizing there is none good upon the earth. No, not one. So while the Scripture is very clear on this point, our old sinful nature likes to debate that. It has a difficult time accepting that. And We would like to know ourselves as somewhat good or have some inherent good in us. But we would not know the fact that we are not good. There's not a single human good if it were not for the truth of God revealing that to us. And we have to yield to what God says about us and not yield to what we feel or what we think. There's not any good. No, not one. And Jesus is correcting this man's misunderstanding of goodness. The second thing Jesus then did is He has to correct this man's notion that there is any good thing we can do to ensure eternal life. This again is somewhat of a natural tendency, the natural thought progression, that Anybody who believes that man is inherently good or has some inherently good in him is going to go in the direction 
of something good that he can do to cinch the matter for his eternal life. He simply wants the clarity and the details of what good thing he must accomplish in order to cinch that security of life. That generally is what people are more concerned with. And yet there's a corollary to this that comes about in this aberrant way of thinking. And that is a belief that God would be bad if He allowed good people to go to hell. We hear this all the time. They would think that no good God could do that, so the thinking goes. But all of that is a complete misunderstanding about the nature of man and the nature of God. And the nature of man is what Jesus is correcting here. First of all, there is no human that's good. And if there's no human that's good, no amount of good things he can do can then change that fact. No good thing will merit or secure eternal life. Again, this is the general notion of most people living today. They think that if they live good enough, then in the balance of things, that will outweigh the, the bad things they've done in life, so that when they stand before God, that they hope that the good will outweigh the bad, and so this is how they think about life. And that's exactly the wrong-headed thinking that Jesus is correcting with His rich young ruler as He comes to him. Jesus corrects those two things right up front. But in order to show the, the man that there is no good thing, essentially, that he is ever going to be able to do to inherit eternal life, the Lord is going to teach him experientially at this point. He corrects him explicitly regarding the goodness of man in general. But now he's going to have to walk him through, walk him down a pathway, so that this man can firsthand experientially understand not only is he not good, he's not even prepared to do the good that Jesus puts before him. He's going to reveal the man's true heart to himself. And by the end of the narrative, by the end of this time with Jesus, the man leaves Jesus sad because he had many and great possessions. Now this is where the passage is often misinterpreted or confusing. Jesus corrects the man's wrong notion about human goodness. And then he corrects the man's wrong notion that no good thing a man can do to inherit eternal life. But how he revealed this last truth to him was walking him down an experiential path of asking him to do some good things. So Jesus gives this man some requirements. He starts off, keep the commandments. That's something good you can do. Now Jesus is going somewhere with this. There's a point yet to be discovered that this man has yet to understand. And so Jesus challenges him with some good requirements of keeping the law of God. And he's just starting off generally here. The young man asked him, which ones? 
So the Lord specifically directs him to the second table, the law. We mentioned how the law of God was, was given to us in two tables, two tablets. And on the first table is what we call the, the, the table one, which has every commandment, the first four of them, that has to do with our relationship with God. The second table, which has the remaining six upon it, has to do with our relationship with our fellow man. The Lord directs him to the second table of the law of God, and he mentions all six of those commandments there, but he reframes the last one. And that's important. Young man, you are to go and you are to honor your father and mother. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Love your neighbors yourself. And he ends with that particular application of the Tenth Commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, where we know the Tenth Commandment is thou shalt not covet. And he does it this way because he knows where this man's heart and this treasure is. And so he's going to reframe that last one and make it very particular to this man who is coming to him with these questions. He's walking him down the path of an experience so that he can come to understand what is true of his own heart. And one of the ways we covet is when we withhold from others what we ought to give to them. It's not only about desiring something of somebody else's, but it's when we fail to open our hands and failure to give what I ought to give. I'm going to take just a bit of an excursus here um, away from this text and bring you into what Jesus is doing from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11. through 11. And here, Paul is expressing a right and lawful use of the law of God. And that's really what Jesus was doing. 1 Timothy verse, chapter 1, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and manslayers, for fornicators and sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and for any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which is committed to my trust. That's a lawful use of the law which Jesus was doing. To use God's good law lawfully, the law was not made for those who are already righteous. It's an interesting statement here because the Apostle Paul had said there is none righteous. In fact, he even quoted from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and declaring there's none righteous, no, not good. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As he's quoting this, he's grouping everybody into this lawlessness, to his sinfulness. And what he's meaning here is that the right use of the law is applied to every single person. You and me. 
The law is for the lawless person, for the rebellious person, telling them that there is a lawgiver and everyone will be held into account to that lawgiver. Now we're going back to Matthew and we're considering how Jesus is dealing with this rich young ruler by pressing the law upon him so that he can come to understand his unrighteousness. He's pressing the law upon a man who thinks himself to be good. Who thinks himself to be good. And he's greatly mistaken in his presuppositions like so many people naturally think today. And so he commands him to keep the commandments. And the man answers him back, either out of complete, ignorant naivety, or out of utter deception, he says, I've kept all the commandments, even from my youth. All right, then, Jesus says, let me apply the tenth commandment to you, and let's test that out. Go and sell everything that you have, and give the proceeds to the poor, and come and follow me. In the moment of personal and specific application, this man was exposed that he was not good and he was unprepared and unwilling to do the good required of him by the Lord. He was not a keeper of God's commandments after all. And what the Lord was commanding this young man Every one of us has faced the same command. And if we haven't, we need to face the reality of our salvation. This is as much today as a self-examination as it is a manner of how to evangelize the lost. But I'm pressing it upon a personal application for self awareness, self-discernment, and asking the Spirit of God to test out our hearts today as Jesus tested out and proved the heart of this rich young ruler. Now what Jesus is not teaching here is divesting ourselves of everything we own in terms of personal possessions in order to become a Christian. In fact, He's not teaching that there is something sanctifying about poverty. He's not teaching some form of asceticism which has been so misinterpreted in past ages. Jesus is calling this man to prove himself in his desire for eternal life by putting his finger right on the very thing this man was willing to clinch more than he was to grab hold of Jesus. He's putting his finger right on the thing that he was holding so tightly to, he would not lessen them, loosen that, in order to grab hold of the Savior. Let's unpack what we have here. What God demands of a sinner to be saved is to put his faith, his complete dependence in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Salvation is by faith alone, apart from any human endeavor. But where do we find that in verse 21? When Jesus says, go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor. And come, follow me. It's in that statement right there, which is the call of faith. To trust in the Savior. To trust in Jesus with what He just told this man to do. Do you trust Me? He says. If you trust Me, then do what I say and obey My Word. He's not teaching a salvation by works. He's teaching this man trusting in Jesus to the extent that He will follow When he calls this man to come and follow him, to sell his goods, come and follow me, he, he's actually, it's another way of saying, do you really believe in me? Will you trust in me? Trust me, Jesus is saying. Prove that you will trust me by doing what I say. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on with this interchange. And if you have not faced that kind of interchange with Jesus, and you've not come to yield to that, then you're still in an unconverted state. Because Jesus commands each one of us the same that He commands this man, but specific and personal to us. Now there's a fallacy today that's going around very prominent. In Bible-believing churches and pulpits, that's been preached on the radio waves and on TV by very sound, or, or at least what we would call sound biblical churches, but they are giving a very false gospel so that really they are not biblical. It's a teaching that says that we can believe that Jesus is the Savior, but not accept Him as Lord. We can believe who He is. We can believe that He is the Son of God. We can believe that He died for our sins. We can believe that He was raised on the third day. We can believe these truths and still not be a Christian. Or still be a Christian by just merely believing those things without any change of life. That's what the, that's what the, the, the teaching is going on. We can claim Him as our Savior but we do not have to bow our knee to Him as Lord. That's a fallacy. That's a heresy. That sends people to hell under a false assurance. We can decide or not if we're going to follow Him, but as long as you believe those facts and those truths as your Savior, then you're okay. You're safe. And the essential element to saving faith, apart from which you or I cannot be saved, is repentance. And that's what these teachers in these pulpits are leaving out of the equation. But is absolutely essential to your conversion. If genuine repentance has not come into your experience, you are still unconverted. 
If you have not experienced true repentance and turning away from the current old man's nature and turning to follow Jesus, because the same command that Jesus gave this man, He gives to us as well. Follow me and trust me. You have to experience. Repentance has to come into your experience. Repentance is a doctrine of the Gospel that requires us to have a change of mind and thereby changing our direction. It requires us to change. In fact, it requires a change in all of our faculties. The the Greek word for repentance is literally the Uh, The word that means to change of mind. And so there is a change of mind that is required of us in the way that we think about the world, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about God, the way we think about Jesus. We have to change. I have a change of mind. It also requires a change emotionally regarding how we, we sense and feel about Jesus. And that is something that will also come about, but there's a change of will. It's the, the totality of all of man that must have this change. In fact, the Hebrew word for the word repentance is a word that means to turn. In fact, very literally, return. You're going that way, and you're going to return. An about face. So repentance involves a whole change of the whole man. It's a completeness that has to come into our experience, apart from which man will not be saved. And this is what he's bringing about in this man's life. An awareness of where his heart is. This man may be willing to believe some truths about Jesus. That's pretty easy. He may be willing to do a good deed. In fact, that's what he was coming to ask Jesus which one to do. But he was unwilling to change his mind about the idols that he was clinging to to the extent that he was unwilling to change his direction to follow Jesus. I'm going to tell you, this is where the greatest pushback comes against the gospel and those who preach it. People are willing to believe some things. People are willing to hear some teaching. But not so willing to change their lives. Specifically. Concretely. Two major developments in the 20th century church going on in evangelical conservative circles that represents the majority of all of the church influences that have influenced us, that we have heard, that we've been exposed to today are bad, erroneous theology and number two, blatant teaching against... Uh, well, bad theology which includes the blatant teaching against the repentance. And number two bad and erroneous application of good doctrine that undermines the necessity of repentance and saving faith. Let me cover just those two very briefly. There's a bad theology that is being taught and propagated and has been for decades now 
And the teaching goes like this. You can have Jesus as Savior, but not accepting as Lord. You can be justified, but not necessarily be sanctified. They separate those two. And while they are distinguishable, they're never inseparable. You can be saved by merely claiming Jesus as the Son of God and believing in Him, so their saying goes, or their teaching goes, without ever changing your life or your direction, or giving up your old man, or the things in life that mean more to you than Jesus. This is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is confronting this rich young ruler with, and it's something that if you have not been confronted with Jesus in the same capacity He's confronting the rich young ruler with, you have to deal with that today. To be clear, to have eternal life, you must be a follower of Jesus. You must obey the Gospel, as the Scriptures would say. You must have a change of mind with a change in your life from your old sinful nature and lifestyle to follow Jesus completely in a new way of living life. That's the call of the Gospel. That's the requirement for eternal life. Just an example of this false gospel that's being put before us for decades. Let me just give you a representation because John MacArthur wrote two whole books that was defending the integrity of the gospel and defending repentance. MacArthur was, yes. But he had to interact with this kind of, of bad theology and this heresy that was coming out of Dallas Theological Seminary, and particularly to from two seminary professors there that have influenced so many of the pulpits, the likes of which I could just rattle off a whole bunch of names up here, of which you have heard on the radio, that have been preaching, not necessarily the false gospel, but have been influenced by these two men. One was Charles Ryrie. Anybody heard of the Ryrie Study Bible? And the other, Zane Hodges. And yes, I'm calling names today because we have to understand that these men were preaching a false gospel. They were preaching and teaching pastors of a theology of what has been deemed as free grace gospel. Dallas Theological Seminary has played an extremely influential role in the modern American pulpit today and why I actually call them out. It has been the citadel of dispensational theology that has then propagated this free grace gospel. Charles Ryrie was the dean of the theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary in his tenure there. He graduated a lot of preachers. Because they graduated from DTS does not mean that they share the same theological or heretical positions that these two men taught there. I want to be very clear about that. But you should be aware of how influential these men have been to the modern American pulpit as well as to the seminary in which they taught. And you should be aware that their dispensational theology has led them to their erroneous positions. Let me give you an example Charles Ryrie in his book, So Great a Salvation, says repentance is a change of mind about Christ. That's good. 
but no turning from sin is required for salvation. Page 99. A believer may utterly forsake Christ and come to the point of not believing. God has guaranteed that He will not disown those who abandon the faith. Page 141. Those who have once believed are forever secure, even if they turn away. Page 143. In defiance to the entire book and meaning of the book of Hebrews that is given to us. Zane Hodges goes further. In his book on Absolutely Free, on pages 144 to 146, he says, Repentance is not essential to the gospel message. In no sense is repentance related to saving faith. He goes on, Nothing guarantees that true Christian will love God. Salvation does not necessarily even place the sinner in a right relationship of harmonious relationship with God. Page 145. It is possible to experience a moment of faith that guarantees heaven for eternity, but then turn away permanently and live a life that is utterly barren from any spiritual fruit. Genuine believers might even cease to name the name of Christ or confess Christianity. Page 111. These men need to be called out on that. This is exactly the opposite of what Jesus was teaching this man by experience when He says, go and sell and come and follow Me. It's the same command that He gives to each one of us, but He personalizes it very directly to our own hearts. Trust Me, Jesus says, with all of your life, with all of your possessions, and don't cling tightly, but come and follow me. That's the gospel. Both of these men's books are built on the premise that repentance, this change of life, is not necessary for saving faith, and that is utterly a lie right out of hell, and the Bible is clear that that is not the case. Repentance is quintessential to saving faith. It is the flip side of the same coin. I'm going to give you a second threat, because this one comes a little closer to home. There's a second threat to the doctrine of repentance that's coming from a theological segment segment that is actually much closer to us, and I'm going to say it's coming predominantly from of good theology, but bad application. Right here among the Reformed evangelicals who believe in the sovereignty of God, who believe in the biblical view of free grace, But the way it usually works its way out is oppressing when someone gets pressed with a change of mind or a change of life. They then find shelter by calling us legalists in order to excuse their licentious behavior. Behavior that they are holding on to, direction of living of life that they are not willing to give up. And they hold to the principles of good theology, but they deny the power of them by not applying them to their lives. 
They can cite biblical principles, but they never get around to applying those biblical principles in any tangible way. In other words, they deny repentance by never actually changing their lifestyle or conforming to the way of Jesus' life. Jesus' direction. And what Jesus calls them to do. They accuse others, like you and me, of being legalistic because the principles are the things they tout. The academia of theology, the parsing of the doctrines of grace, they are never actually applied in their lives. But we have to note here that the way that Jesus dealt with the rich young ruler as he Actually, it was in the application of the Tenth Commandment that this man's heart was exposed for what it was. Jesus went right to an application of a principle, and in the failure of the application of the principle was the man's heart exposed that he truly was not obedient to the law, nor was he willing to be. A good doctrine that goes unapplied has no benefit in your life. The gospel is something to be obeyed. In fact, Paul even uses that phrase at least twice in the Scripture, obedience unto the gospel. It has to be applied. It has to be lived out in concrete ways, not merely assented to, And we can't accept people's heretical lives in calling us legalists simply for living out our following of Jesus. So you have bad teaching, and you have bad living with good teaching, both of which reveal something wrong about their gospel. And Jesus confronts both of these errors in one fell swoop, swoop with the manner in which He's teaching this man about how to have eternal life. Your teaching's wrong. Your thinking's wrong, He tells the man. I have to correct those things. But now let me press upon you an application of the Gospel to see, prove out and test to see if you really will trust Me. And while both of those previous errors I mentioned were in order to uphold God's free grace, they completely miss the point of the gospel altogether. Hear me now. They completely miss the point of the gospel altogether, and that is about following Jesus. What's the point of eternal life if you're not in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? What is the point of all this if you're not following Jesus and doing whatsoever He commands us? just trying to sell some fire insurance. You know, many people in the circles that we've grown up in, right? They, they pray to prayer. They pray to prayer. But have never decided to follow Jesus. How many testimonies have you heard of even little children? I asked Jesus into my heart. But those children have never had a change of directions to actually follow Jesus. 
We're teaching lines and cliches. We're not teaching and introducing them to a person who is their God. Followers, disciples, are obedient to the Lord, trusting Him in whatever He requires of us, whatever He asks of us. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the Creator, and He can ask anything He wishes of us. And when He tests us out, He proves us. It's going to see what's really in our heart. True faith has a backside to it. It's the flip side of the same coin, and that's called repentance. Repentance is inseparable from saving faith. It's not an option. It's not an add-on. It's not a second work of grace. It's inseparable. And if it's not a part of the character of your faith, then your faith is not a saving faith. Jesus is calling for repentance as He bids this young man to come and follow Him. Repentance is an altering of the thinking with a change of direction in your life. And He's proving this young man out about really what's He going to trust. And this teaching of the necessity of repentance is being taught against these days. But you have to change your thinking about who God is. And you have to note how many times in the Scripture that the Bible calls us to repent and believe the Gospel. When John shows up on the scene, the Baptist, his message is repent and believe the Gospel for the Kingdom of God is at hand. In Luke 3, He demands of the people that come to Him, He demands of them to bring forth the fruit that is evidence of their genuine repentance. He's telling the people, prove yourself and show the evidence of your repentant life. And they ask Him, well, John, what are you asking for? He would say, well, if you have two tunics, give one to the one who doesn't have one. If you have food, then share your food with somebody that doesn't. I want to see the fruit of the change of mind and the change of life. I want to see the fruit of God's kingdom at hand in your life working. That's what he was saying. When I say when I want to see the fruit of your total change of mind, I want to know that what you really believe is that Jesus Christ is ruler and sovereign over all. That God's kingdom has truly come near in Christ. That you believe that His sovereign governance, including your life and all the provision for your needs, is something that you give yourself to. John says, I want to know that you really believe so that you show some evidence of it. That's what he's saying. Well, John, what do you mean by that? I mean that if you have something to eat, share what you have with someone that doesn't. Next group comes up. Tax collectors who are these notorious group of people in Israel. And they ask you, well, John, what should we do? He says, we'll collect no more taxes than what is due. Be fair. Stop defrauding people. 
Next group comes up, a group of soldiers. Well, John, what should we do? He says, well, you know, be content with your wages and stop being unfair and abusing your authority with people. When John is calling for repentance, he's calling for more than just a mere right opinion of Jesus Christ. He's calling for change. A change in their lives from their current way of doing things to a new life in following Jesus that will prove itself out in changing. Showing this change. John was not teaching a salvation by works. Go and change and then therefore. Any more than Jesus was teaching a salvation by works. Go and sell all that you have give to the poor and you'll have eternal life. That's not what he said. He says, come follow me. See, a change of heart will do the kinds of things that evidences it of the kinds of characteristics that John was preaching, that Jesus was revealing. The call of John was to repent and believe the gospel and that the kingdom, God's sovereignty over all things, is at hand right now and is among you in this man, Jesus. Follow Him. Change your thinking and your mind and your heart and trust Him and follow the sovereign Creator, Redeemer of the universe. Whatever He says to you, do it. That's the call. That's what this young man was starting to struggle with. That's what everybody struggles with. Anytime a preacher begins to address conduct or call people to change what they're doing in their life, that's where the greatest resistance to his preaching occurs. We can teach beautiful truths. But when I press that into an application, stop doing what you're doing. And give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. That begins to make people squirm. John addressed misconduct of the highest official then in the land. It landed him in prison and eventually cost him his head. Jesus continued the same message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And for that very message, he angered people to the extent that they killed him too. Jesus told us that if our righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you that if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you have already murdered him in your heart. If you've ever called your neighbor a bad name like a fool, this is committing murder. He tells the woman at the well, yes, you say rightly, that man's not your husband. You've had five, and the one you have now is not your husband. He calls her to change her behavior, her current status of living in sin. And he says, go and do not do this anymore. The message of the gospel requires a change of mind with a change of direction. 
And so many Christians today want to tout their Christian liberties as an excuse for not genuinely repenting of their wayward direction in life. The things they want to do more than what God wants them to do. Those kind of people have not experienced true conversion. That's what's going on here with the rich young ruler. You contrast that spirit with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has this meeting with Jesus and then he tells Jesus, you know, I'm going to go sell half of my goods and give to the poor and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to restore back fourfold times. That's a change of mind with a change of outward behavior that was a result in the change of a heart in coming to meet Jesus to follow Him. Why Jesus says salvation has come to this house today. It's not a salvation by works. It's not legalism. It's true repentance. It's evidencing itself as the faith and the trust in the Savior is proved out. And note, I'll say this Zacchaeus only had to sell half of his possessions to demonstrate this genuine heart where the rich young ruler was asked to sell all. And that shows that the issue is not about the possessions at all. It's, it's not about the percentage of ownership of possessions. In fact, Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew 27 was considered a very rich man. The issue has not to do with the possessions whatsoever. It has to do with the heart and anything in your life that means more than Jesus. To the rich young ruler, it was his possessions that Jesus was putting his finger on. But what is it in your life and my life that may mean more than Jesus so that you're not willing to let that go to cling to Him and follow Him? Could be a woman. Could be a man. Could be a spouse. Could be a child. Could be your parent. Could be women in general. Could be money. Could be entertainment, sports. Or if you're a liar or a thief or a homosexual. All of those things are showing and demonstrating that if you love those things more than following Jesus, salvation has not yet come to your house. Repentance has to come into your experience for true conversion to take place. That's why there's a boldness to ask people to deal with their sin. That's where there's a, 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 a spiritual boldness to, to call people to change and to repent of their sins. You can tell people about Jesus, but when you ask them to repent, man, then the thing gets really tough. It's not merely believing facts about Him, though. It's about changing your life to follow Him. And He's going to ask you in the way that He leads to change your life, and He's going to lead you in a direction that is going to be completely contrary to the way that you've been going before your conversion. The Gospel requires us to love Christ more than anything else. To the extent that we so trust Him, that we can give up anything in our lives... Because He means more to us than anything in our lives. And we trust that He's good and gracious and we will follow Him knowing and obeying what He desires of us. 
might be different from you than it is from you. I've had people argue with me about things they were unwilling to give up claiming Christian liberties. Calling me a legalist. Which, by the way, doesn't bother me anymore. It doesn't bother me. I'm used to it. Call me that all you want. I do not believe in a works-based salvation. I do believe in repentance. And yet, as, as they're, they're calling me a legalist, holding on to their liberties, not changing their ways, their lives were falling apart. Folks, if things aren't working out for you, if your marriage isn't working, if your parenting isn't working out, if your children, that relationships, whatever you have, is not working out for you, something's got to change. And I can assure you that change must begin with you. That's a call to repent and follow Jesus. Contemporary Christianity does not allow people to walk away from the call of the Gospel. It chases them down. It wants to make the environment comfortable. It wants to address people in their old fallen nature to be relevant to them. I do not want to be relevant to your fallen nature. I want to be holy and call you to holiness according to God's nature. But contemporary Christianity does not let people walk away. Oh, whoa, 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 wait, come back. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. The rich young ruler turned away and he walked away sad because he had great possessions. And Jesus let him walk. People walk away when they're called to repentance. People walk away when they are pressed with change. People walk away when they are called to pursue peace with all people and holiness apart from which no one will see God. People walk away. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy that this is going to happen, young Timothy. There's going to be a time coming when people are going to walk away from that kind of preaching. It's that kind of preaching that's going to change people's lives. It's that kind of preaching that's going to change the world. But people are going to walk away from that kind of preaching. But you keep preaching repentance and trust in the Gospel, Timothy. Now, I'm going to tell you that it is impossible for anyone to say, Okay, I'm going to throw it all off and follow God. I'm going to do what you just said. And I'm going to tell you, that is impossible. Well, wait a minute. Aren't you just saying to have eternal life, that's what you were to do? Yes. And for you, and for me, that is impossible. 
In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, the Lord says, than for a guy like this, or for a practicing homosexual, or for an adulterer, or for a thief, or for a chronic liar, or for anyone who is a sinner, or for you and me, to do that. You can't do that. It's impossible. And the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? If a rich man like this can't be saved, because in the eyes of the day, the rich were those who were blessed of God, and if the ones who are blessed of God can't be saved, then who can be saved? That's the idea. The Lord says, yeah. It's impossible with people. It's impossible. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. He's cinching the very point he began with. There ain't no good thing you're going to do. You're not even going to inherit eternal life by doing this in your flesh. What he's calling us to do is to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and to give it all up to follow him and obey his word, trust in his sovereignty in every part of our lives. But you're not going to be able to do this in your flesh. So what? Do I do? The only way to get divine possibility on your side, yoked up with your need, meeting you right where the possibility lies, is to cry out to God to change your mind and to change your direction and to save you. That's the call. Have you had a change of mind about Jesus to such an extent that you have changed the direction of your life and you are following Him? That your behavior has changed, your character has changed, your worldview has changed. Because apart from that experience of repentance, you are still unconverted. Because repentance is an essential aspect of saving faith. If this has not been true in your life, today can be the day of salvation. You change your thinking about Christ, and you change your way of thinking about Christ. You change your behavior, but the way you're going to do that is call out to God to save you. Lord, give me this new heart. Give me this mind. Give me that which... Only you can give and change this old man. I do not like the direction it's going, but I cannot stop what I am doing. I want to give this up, but I cannot give this up. My hands will not let go of this. Lord, release my hands from the grip of idolatry so that I can cling to the cross. You pray that kind of prayer. That's the prayer God hears and answers. That's the prayer of faith. That's the prayer that shows a repentance. Because Jesus is Lord of all. And He demands our fidelity and our loyalty and our need to bow to Him and to acknowledge Him as such. And if He is not Lord of all in your life, of all in your life, He's not Lord at all 
in your life. So while there's lots of instruction here for us in how we evangelize the lost in the world today, even among the many wealthy of Americans, there's a direct application to us here today to examine our lives to see if repentance has been in our experience of our conversion. And for the most of us, I trust that that has been true and it continues to be a part of our ongoing character in life. We repent when we come to know that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We want to get that right and our bones ache. And then we come and we confess our sin to one another. We confess it to God. We ask Him to change our heart. And we are resolved to walk in the direction according to the grace of God. Not clinging to anything more tightly than Jesus. Not loving anyone more than Jesus. Jesus is our all in all. And He's a good God. And the rich young ruler who held on to a few possessions, great in man's eyes, when Jesus was the owner of the entire world, but he didn't trust him. Let's not be that way. We have all confidence that Jesus provides for everything that we need for life and for godliness. He's promised us immense promises that continue to go on by which we are to live. But He calls us always to believe those promises. And by believing those promises, we live today in the light of that trust and faith that He is faithful to those promises. You've got to trust Him for tomorrow. You have to trust Him for the afternoon. You have to trust Him for anything you worry about in life. You have to trust Him with everything because He is sovereign. And you just resign yourself in the good sovereign hand of God. And now you ask Him, what would you have me to do? Lord, here am I. What would you have for me? When you pray that, God will answer it abundantly. And He will pour into your cup until it continues to run over. And you will see how good the Lord truly is. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For this call of repentance out of our old dominion of sin into a new way of living as instruments of righteousness. We thank You for giving us that new heart that is impossible for us to have. But with You, You have created in us a new and clean heart in Christ Jesus. Having regenerated us by the Holy Spirit, drawing and calling us to Christ, so that we love Him. And this is a work that You take full credit for. It is all of grace and we give You our, our thanks. And we ask that if there's anyone here today that is unconverted, that may be living under the false pretense of their profession, but truly has not repented of their sins, we pray that Your Spirit would convict that heart this day and bring him or her to Yourself. If there's anyone here of your children that is clinging to something today, that is squelching the Spirit of God and the fellowship that he or she should be having with his God and with his neighbor, we pray you would convict that person that the person would come to repentance and know the, the blessing of God our Savior and giving the meek the inheritance of the earth. 
So we pray that You would work in each one of our hearts, making us a people that are poor in spirit, who mourn over sin, who are meek, and who have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. We pray that we would be peacemakers and that we would, with all of our hearts, cling to that which is good and forsake all that is evil. Let us love what You love and hate what You hate. And may our lives conform to it in specific application from our hearts, showing our love for what You've done for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.